The Athletic. Hello, I'm Matt Slater, and welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Later on, we'll look at the potential impact war with Russia may have on football in Ukraine. But my first guest today is Gary Sweet, Chief Executive of Luton Town Football Club, who play in the Championship in England, which is, of course, is one level below the Premier League. Well, Gary, thanks so much for joining us. There might be some people out there listening who don't know about Luton Town. So, you know, I, you know, I'm of an age. I remember you in the in Division One. Am I right in thinking that Luton Town were relegated just before the Premier League started? Yeah, absolutely. We were a founder member, actually. Uh, Luton Town and Notts County uh, were, were the two founder members. and We, we both got relegated that season, yes. after, just the season prior to the Premier League kicking off. And we, we had a good spell in the top, top league at that point, you know, and, and, uh, and yeah, we're, we're, we're arguably one of the top clubs, you know, finishing top half regularly. All through the 80s, I remember, you know, Luton Town were an absolute fixture in the, in the top flight. Now, it would be fair to say that it's been a, something of a roller coaster since then now you came in i think in 2008 let's should we start there because that's where things well have been very interesting for luton town and and then you know we can then get into the kind of the the, the climb back to the championship but so 2007 2008 what what was going on even prior to that though, Matt, I, I, luton's always been this real industrial town you know since it's sort of you know post and pre-war going back some time you know it's the oldest professional club in the south of England you know it, it always had a f- real football heritage you know and and so it it's always been there you know that it, for for some of the younger lads to to, to think you know or lasses to think about Luton as being you know a, a, a lower league club is actually quite odd for a lot of us oldens you know like us that that, that know its heritage so so it's it's always there, you know, and 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 so when we when we came in in two thousand and eight, you know, we we um, in fact um, it kind of started, if I may say, back in two thousand and two when, when I and a few others set up um, the, the supporters trust in order to to stop the football club from being taken over from rogue owners at the time you know and, and that kind of then happened again shortly afterwards and 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 hence the reason why you know why we got involved and in that period between 2002 and 2008 I think I collected a few um, a few friends who were willing you know good Luton people who were willing to put some some money in to to effectively take the club out of administration um, and take take that risk in the, with the original plan of, of somebody else running it, somebody else coming in to run it. But then, you know, then, then it, it just fell on my lap, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Off and away. <laughs> but I mean, it was, a, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's all coming back to me now. So two, three straight relegations with, yeah. the, with, the, with the last one being minus 30 points. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, the club nearly overcame. Is that right? That, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, 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 that actually happened that we got the 30 points in our tenure, but because of the transgressions of previous owners. And, and so we, you know, and bizarrely, we actually got a 10-point deduction from the FA, not just the 20-point right. deduction from the, football, from the Football League at the time. And, and you know, it, we thought the 20 points was was really harsh. You know, we, we hadn't quite done what, what 
you know, um, what an, an awful lot of other clubs have done and got away with it. So, you know, since then. So I, th- I think there's always been this inconsistency in terms of, you know, um, uh, penalty punishment points and, you know, uh, and no sanctions. And and particularly when, you know, the FA got involved, you know, uh, purely for, for, I say purely for, it's wrong. You know, the football club mm-hmm. back then, I'm not going to deny that, you know, with previous owners, hence the reason why we wanted to, wanted to put it all right. But, it, you know, in terms of the weight of punishment, it did feel harsh, that 30 yeah. points. And yes, we nearly overcame it. It's kind of what's what's made us who we are today, to some extent, and certainly established a, a fairly prolonged, certainly longer than we really wanted period in the in the conference. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, there are so many parallels with other clubs when I when I think about Luton's story, and obviously Derby now with their points deduction. Three straight relegations. What well, was very nearly my club, Southend United. Um, you know, Wrexham having that long stay in the you know in the fifth tier. You guys got out having having gone to the playoffs. I think a couple times. Was it two, three times? Yeah, twice. And, twice. and well, well, playoff final twice, playoffs a third time. So it, it was. It's a tough league, you know. It's yeah. a, and and you know, people. This is the reason why we feel so passionate about the the the, the pyramid, the depth of of professional football in this country is like no other, nowhere else, you know, the fifth tier and, and, you know, uh, it's very easy to, to, to mock that level, but the professionalism is, is unbelievable. And, you know, we, we loved, uh, you know, put aside the fact that we're in the fifth tier. We actually yeah. loved the t- our time there. It was very, you know, it was very friendly, very, you know, everybody involved at that level, um, in it for the love of the game, the passion of the game. You know, they were, you know, volunteering their time. You know, everything to to, to keep their clubs um, alive and, and and punching and and trying to get into into that. We, we look at the this this panacea of the Premier League. They look at it as getting into the league. You know, and and the competition there was was phenomenal, especially with just the one you know one play one mm-hmm. place up and, and then playoffs. So, um, but but it, it was you know, we look back at back at it really fondly. Um, and actually more ways than one, you know, not, not, not just from the point of view, it's an enjoyable period of time. I think our fans reconnected with, um, with the game as well as us, you know, and but actually the spirit back there, you know, and, and is, is really quite phenomenal. It's brilliant. Well, let's continue the journey then. So you got out eventually. Did you, was it, did you get out of champions? We did, yeah. It, it got a bit quicker after that. It was a couple of years in League Two, then, then League Two, League One, Championship two straight promotions wasn't it yeah the tough one was was getting back into the league you know because yeah. uh, because you know you you have no central funding you know when when you're broadly you know have no central funding in, in the national league level and when you're there for for a, for longer than a couple of years then you have no protection on the youth academy players and and, and though you know those rights so it's very very difficult to make that transition so when you make that transition and get back into the league then you can can create some stability around that and Spending five years in, in the conference at the time really gave us a harsh lesson of, of, of how we, we established that firm foundation of stability back then, which I think is now benefiting us today and will continue to benefit us further, you know, furthermore. It's a very difficult model to copy for that reason. You know, if you want to copy it, go down to the conference for five years. Well, this is why I wanted to get you on for a while, Gary, because, you know, whenever I talk to EFL people, particularly championship people, now, your club comes up as a as just a bit of a model club, to be honest. There's an awful you've got a lot of admirers out there. The way you do things now, now just let's 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 talk about that. And uh, you know, you've you've hinted at it. You run a tight ship. There is a focus on youth and player development, but everyone talks about that. 
how are you doing it? Our academy is really quite closely linked, and we see it closely linked to the to our community projects. You know, and and it's a real benefit from that perspective because, you know, one of the things when we we came into the football club, we had a a, um, a number of cornerstones. It's under a banner called Twenty Twenty Mission. It's about what the club would look like in twelve years after 2008 it's really to set some long-term expectations establish some patience with the supporter base and really set ourselves some real long-term you know long-term goals and one of those was all about how we engage with community with charities with with our you know um not just through our community so we have then established community trust which we didn't have at the time but in in more ways than just you know just coaching it with um with with with, with holiday clubs and things like this in far more, more ways in terms of education and, and all the, these other pieces. But actually, the, the, what underpinned all of that was a strong academy because unless you, you gave those, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids going on those holiday clubs a little bit of aspiration, you know, if you, if you do well here, you, you, you can then progress in, into, into professional football ultimately, you know, so that was a real, really strong link. And that's where it started from. Of course, what we will always want to do, every club wants to do is, is to recruit some of those seven, eight, nine year olds, bring them right through the academy and establish them as Premier League footballers. We, we've done that with, with a few, not necessarily with, with our club, by the way. And, and that isn't always the, 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 the test. You know, we, we've got a number of academy players playing in, in, in professional football, an awful lot of them. As our rise has happened over, over that period, it's become much more difficult for those academy players to, to, to establish themselves in Luton's team. But we, we've got to now reorganise, so we are hitting those, um, those benchmarks. We're, we're actually bringing two or three players through every year, um, and, and we're trying to, to, to include those within our first team. But overall, yeah, I think it's it's a certain success. I think we, you know, we're very, very, we've been very happy with our, our past history. You know, there have been one or two players that that you can establish. James Justin, for example, who, who is a perfect example as a Luton-born lad, Luton, you know, Luton family, you know, sort of started right throughout our academy um, and went right through it, now playing at the top of the Premier League and is being lauded. But um, but there's a number of those. Well, I was looking. So the year, your first year in the Championship, because those, those are your most recent set of accounts, yeah, I think you made a profit of about the best part of three and a half million, which is very impressive. And I think, you know, a key to that, of course, was you managed to sell James Justin and Jack Stacey that year for the for the best part of 10 million, right? Since then, I've not I've not spotted a big sale. I know you I know you sold a goalkeeper in in, in the most recent window. The way these these work though is that so um we, we don't we didn't get that 10 million up front. So no, of course so that th- th- those that, that income would be amortized over the period of, of when it's paid. So um so that doesn't mean to say, you know, the the, the three profit minus 10 yeah. seven million loss. We you know our you know we do operate on a natural um, loss model is you know we call it the, the minimum loss model <laughs> because you know well, that's the championship though isn't it I mean kind of worst way football works isn't it because you know you you if you pay less for your players your product gets weaker you get relegated and and, and your crowds go away if you charge more for your tickets your income then then your crowds well, I think fans sometimes miss that I mean you know a well-run lauded club like Luton you run at a loss yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and well, I say a natural loss. What we have to do is rely on football fortune. You touched on it. it, yeah. it and that football fortune is good cup run. Um, it, you know, it, it, and it's getting, you know, uh, players 
go through your academy, allowing them to to move on to other clubs. So you've got this continuous income from those lads, but also, you know, also buying and selling, you know, and, you know, as, as we have done, you know, Jack, Jake, Jack, Jack Stacey is a, is a classic example of that where, you know, we bought him for less than a hundred grand and, and sold him for, for, you know, a few million, but those principles are, are, are absolutely paramount. We have to do that to in order to survive financially. And um, we don't have an ownership model, and nor would we want an ownership model that continued to put money into football. We we genuinely do believe that, that football clubs should break even, like any business, sensible business should. Well, let's talk about this season then, because it's going well, particularly this calendar year. You're on a good good run. Promotion? I mean, are, are you? Is it? You know? Is it? Well, how excited are you getting, Gary? We have to be realistic, and we, you know our, our mantra is always need to need to keep our feet on the ground. And you know, look, thankfully, we've achieved the first goal, which is which is we're not going to go down this year. Mm. Uh, and that was really what we set out to achieve at the beginning of this season. As we, you know, we had a really big transfer window last summer. We we, we had a few players that come to their end of their period at Luton. We needed to to evolve organically. You know, we always do. We have to do. And and but but it meant that we signed quite a lot of new players um, brought the average age down considerably so you know so there was a slight nervousness about how well they would settle how how uh, much they'd make the how quickly they'd make the, the step up to championship level because a lot of them from, from lower levels lower leagues but that's gone very well you know and, and um, and we're really pleased with the, with the progress of, of of all of our players. Actually, all of those we, we've recruited, even though some uh, might be ahead of others. You know, it's just it's just a matter of time for for the rest. So, so our recruitment campaign in some was great. We're really pleased with that. Where, where would you put your budget in the championship? Bottom three, um, whether it's second, third, bottom is is out. I mean, there are assessments. It's difficult to know. And in two years' time, you'll know if I'm right because when all the accounts get you know mm. get published, mm. find out. Mm. But, but you know, we we largely know where where we are. We're, so, so you, Barnsley, uh, uh, probably, Peterborough, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Hull aren't far away. I don't think, but you know, that that. But I think we, you know, we're certainly we 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 operate our own salary cap. Just, just to stress that point, you know, of the clubs we've just mentioned, they're all fighting relegation. You're not. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 interesting. One of the things ratios we try to look at is is how much does a point cost us uh, and actually we're you know we're doing quite well we're well top of the league on that point you know so well, that's really interesting uh, uh, so it, it, it's it's um it's a it's quite an interesting dynamic to, you know way to look at it because it, it shows you when and, and if you need to be a bit more ambitious for example whether you could do that where we are, we're really comfortable where we are, by the way. And we're not, the interesting thing you asked about promotion, the P word, do we talk about it? We don't hide away from it. We have to be ready. I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you can imagine us taking Kenilworth Road into the Premier League, we've, we've got to be ready for that. <laughs> I know. Know, it takes a lot of preparation. So we have, there's a lot of work going on at the moment. I like Kenilworth Road. I haven't been there for a while. But but could would Kenilworth Road actually meet Premier League criteria? Yeah, I mean, if you know, there are other clubs that have gone you know into the Premier League that have capacities of ten thousand. Bournemouth were were the yeah. most recent case, for example. Bournemouth Dean Court doesn't really operate much differently to the way Kenilworth Road does. You know, it it kind of it's just older. You know, our stadium is hundred and fifteen years old. Whatever. In yeah, some ways it looks it, but it's fantastic. You know, it, in some ways it'll add something to the Premier League. In my in in our belief, mm-hmm. uh, it, Premier League players, many of them will will probably only ever go to a ground like that when they play in in, in a in a cup competition. So 
lovely, cherished, famous old home, but a bit like some of the guys in your squad, it's time to move on, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And and look, everybody recognised that. And the, and the football club recognised that first in 1955. <laughs> so so it's out to, to, to try and relocate back then. You know, we're, we're the first ones to really get this far, you know, and, and it will be done. You know, we are going to achieve that. You know, we've got our outline planning done. Um, we've got a detailed planning application where we look at effectively a stadium of about 18,000 that grows up to, 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 to 23,000. So starting at 18, but kind of naturally and easily grows to, to, to 22, 23,000, which is where our outline planning application is capped, you know, with potential future growth later if it's, it's needed, but, um, but really capping at 23 and, and doing that as quickly as possible. But it's a difficult project because we're, we're looking to regenerate um, a, a local area, a, a town centre site, putting the football club right in the heart of the town centre, three, three, four minute walk from the, the train station, um, 20 acre site. There'll be over wow. a thousand departments on there. There'll be, you know, there'll be a lot of other activity, you know, around that hotel, you know, a little bit of retail, quite a few, a few other bits right. of commerce and things like that. So we're looking to develop the whole thing, you know, there. We have to move a substation. We've got to open a river. A couple of little things like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, 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 it is. It is quite. It's, it's quite. It's not something that that where you know you have a little bit of you know greenfield or brownfield site. No, yeah. a flat bit of land. It, it, it's, it's a bit more complex than that. So, um, so we, we're trying to go as quickly as we can. That detailed plan should be in within within the next two or three months. Gary, is there anyone any pro- sort of project recently that it that it's like anyone you've been looking looking at and talking to no and, and actually we don't want it to look like anything else Matt actually we really what we want it to look like is is Kenilworth Road now it never will you know because <laughs> we want to get away from that you know in, in in many ways but what we want to do is to take the bits of Kenilworth Road that we love forward and into the design of of, of Power Court and that's a difficult thing because again because compliance on you know the rake of, of stands and the and the mm-hmm. property yeah. of, of the you know the, the the seats to the pitch and you know all the things you've got to have within the stadium now with you know uh with everything it, it makes it much more more difficult to do that the later you build i mean we're, we're one of the last clubs to, to effectively move or relocate and that is is proving to be a real a real challenge on those things to keep those characteristics that we want to take forward in into the new stadium but we will it will be a real it be a real um, intimidating environment a little bit like kenilworth road is you know if i'm a luton town fan what else is going to draw me to the stadium on a kind of regular basis? We hope that that we can. I mean, it, the, the music business has been really hit um, hit badly recently um, uh, through coronavirus, and it's, it's it's recovering slowly, but it is recovering. We did have we have got planning application for a music venue next to it, um, which will be kind of connected to the stadium. There is still a still a hole for that, a slot for that. Clearly, we we're going to have to wait for some funding on that. It's not something we we can we can necessarily build until there's a guaranteed business model at the back of it. So so we hope that that would work and that might open up opportunities for music um you know uh, in that area going back to what Luton's known for it's, it's it's kind of known for its football it's boxing and it's 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 music you know there's a lot of good musicians that come out of Luton there's that element we're also you know we're, we're very connected to the music 
industry with with a couple of um, people on the board. But the other thing as well is that that, that our Hatters Heritage it's a charity that was funded from supporters or, or started from supporters and, and got some lottery funding. It's got one of the most extensive websites of of Luton Town's history. You know, going back to when we turned professional in 1885. It's a phenomenal um, phenomenal piece of work that these guys are doing volunteering and um, and actually you know we're, we're looking to, to to if we if possible to put a museum in. So you know just to celebrate our our, our past our roller coaster history. Well, I mean, you might be making some history next week. You know, you got Chelsea, haven't you? You talked about football fortune. I mean, that's that's a slice of Chelsea for, uh, football fortune right there. What sort of welcome are you going to give Chelsea in the fifth round of the FA Cup? It'd be more fortunate if it was away, probably. Oh, true. <laughs> you know, but but listen, we you know we we we're happy to have them at home because I think I think it gives us a good chance actually. You got the cameras in, haven't you? Of course, yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're like I mean, listen, I'm not complaining. You know, this is this is we're we're, we're doing fine on that you know but really what we need to do is to is to is to beat Chelsea and get Tottenham or Man United away or oh, not Man United anymore but, but somewhat as someone bigger way to get a big big t- big check but but look we don't chase this is this is actually about the glory for us this is well, I, we love the FA Cup you know and and we actually played Chelsea last year in the FA Cup of away, but it was it, but it was behind closed doors and that's that's after playing Man United at home uh in 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 the, the Carabao Cup which again was behind closed doors the, the losers in all of that were supporters. So, so for this game, we're really looking to reward those supporters that backed us in the last, last couple of years, coronavirus, and, and and make sure that we we pack out Kenilworth Road with with the genuine fans. You know, you're going to be oversubscribed, of course. I mean, what is, is it? Season ticket holders, basically. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we, we've got to give a little bit more to the away fans, obviously, to Chelsea. So that there's few left. I mean, we've got, including commercial, um, sort of the hospitality guests, we're, we're, we're pretty much touching 7,500 season wow. tickets. Yeah. So, you know, so we haven't got a lot left. And, you know, the FA take, take a few and, you know, <laughs> you have to give a few few to, to players and things like this. So. Yeah. Not going to be many, many available. Today's big news, just as announced just before before we started talking, actually, is is the highlights moving to ITV. Good, good news. Bigger exposure, bigger audience. Yeah, no, absolutely brilliant news. Uh, and and you know, I I think like, whilst Quest has, has been been terrific for us, actually, it's been been a great program. I think that the exposure that the ITV will 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 give us across their platforms, I think, will be, will be amazing. You know, and it, it really deserves it because I'm an avid watcher of the, of the program every Saturday night. It's just one of those things where I do when I can't sleep after a game. It's that 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 adrenaline withdrawal comes down. All I do is watch watch that and match of the day. And it's a great pro, but putting that, um, making, giving that more exposure to more people will we'll do everything you know, well or good. Sponsors like it, don't they? Is the money about the same? In the end, it will be. I don't think the upfront is is probably quite what it was, but you know, but we're not looking. You know, this isn't this isn't the the, the big Sky contract. This no, the, of course, this is the highlights package. Is, is something you'll never do. Uh, when I was on the conference board back, you know, for that five year period, one of the things I got involved in was the broadcast rights. You know, the highlights package. They're not what they used to be. You know, I remember as a kid, we, you know, we used to watch it, you know, uh, the, the various programs, including Sports Night Midweek, where you used to watch three or four games during midweek. Yeah, they're not quite what they used to be. You know, today's crowd is all about the live game. Yeah. But actually, I, I still think there's a really strong market for a highlights package. And especially if you start to include some more editorial content around maybe the business of football or the community of football or supporters. I think it'd be really interesting. Just on on the money, 
on the, on the sort of the EFL and where we're at with money. Again, one of the sort of long-running sagas of this season has been around, oh, season before, to be honest, and the seasons before that as well, has been around the, the financial distribution and the relationship with the Premier League. And, of course, COVID shone a great big light on that. Uh, we've had Tracy Crouch's family review. Gary, I know you have views on these issues. Where, where, where are we at right now? The, the, the review came out a few months ago. We've had Tracy on. We've had Rick Parry, the boss of EFL, on as well. It feels. It seems like it's gone quiet. It certainly hasn't. I, I think there is a lot of activity going on at the upper echelons of, of politics and football, um, for sure. Um, I think there are some really sensitive topics. There's going to be somewhere down the line, Turkey's going to have to vote for Christmas because football can't continue without that happening, you know, in, in, in a harmonious way. It's really important that that happens. I, I think it, uh, the way I see it, it, it is like this. And look, I care about the pyramid from top to bottom and and um, and distributions are unfair. Uh, and, and my view is that whilst we don't want money to escape from football, therefore salary capping might not quite work because then, you know, the Premier League might lose out to international competition or to another sport. I get all that. I think a redistribution is absolutely necessary. Premier League clubs at the top of that level, particularly those that started to look at look at a breakaway league, should really concentrate and, and focus hard below them on what's happening because without you know that is the foundation to what they do it's not the other way around it is a pyramid it's called a pyramid for that reason we really need to protect it you know those at the top need to protect it at the bottom if it's a little bit like your weakest member of the team so your weakest league your weakest club within that weakest league is the that's the club that needs to be protected but at the same time it has to be has to be managed sustainably it has to be run properly efficiently you, you know and and um, and clubs have therefore also got to be incentivized not to to blow their brains out <laughs> as well, clubs yeah. are doing particularly in the championship just to get to 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 you know uh to the premier league so you know my belief is that there will be a redistribution at some point as there because there has to be and whether that is self-governed mm. by Premier League, Football League, Professional Game Board, the FA, whoever's going to get involved in that um, National League. Whether we do it ourselves as, as a football community, wider football community, or whether we're told to do it by the government, you know, I hope it's the first, but, you know, if, yeah. if it needs to be the second, then so be it. Parachute payments. You know, I, you know, in a way I get it because, you know, look, you know, one of the things, and we, we haven't, haven't recently got it just because we're, we're in the top half of the championship. But if we go up, for example, and that might be the last time I'm going to say this for a long time. <laughs> but if we go up, for example, Matt, you know, we, we have to sign players who, you know, who are on much greater salaries who, who might not be willing to drop you know, 80% to come back down to the championship again. Yeah. So how do we protect that? So I'd rather look at, I'd rather look at some form of insurance scheme. Okay. That protects clubs against, you know, that allows clubs to, to, to sign players that, that are competitive at that level. Yeah. But you know what, if it doesn't happen, I'm happy, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get that. We'll compete. You know, if we have to only pay what we're, what would be a sustainable number for, for, you know, for, for one season in the premier league, um, across a three-year period for, for a player's contract. Yeah. Like, for example, we would be we would put together a competitive side, a very competitive side. If that's the way we've got to do it, then fine. But I think there is a, there is a better way. 
but parachutes are wrong as they are at the moment. Lovely talking to you, Gary. Great. Thanks, man. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I'm joined now by Ukrainian football expert Andrew Todos, who runs the Zoraya Londonsk blog. And I want to talk to him about the potential impacts war with Russia may have on football in Ukraine. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. Just first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. I run Zoria Londonsk on Twitter and Instagram. It's a Ukrainian football resource in English language. I started in 2018 when I thought there wasn't much good coverage on Ukrainian football in English language. I always saw sort of the same mistakes being brought up in English language broadcasting and the likes. So I thought, well, I follow this as a hobby anyway. I like watching the Premier League, Ukrainian Premier League, the national team, etc. Why not just start doing this a bit more from uh, a wider standpoint? And I also run a Ukrainian uh, football podcast called Ukraine Plus Football. Uh, that's also in English language, and we do weekly uh, episodes on that too. Well, look, there are clearly more important things going on in Ukraine. Yeah, and that part of the world than just football. But look, the UK's foreign secretary was talking about football again this morning on Wednesday morning. They were talking about it yesterday in the House of Commons. So I think 
we as a football show are allowed to talk about football. Andrew, how has football in Ukraine, how's it, how's it coped with the pressure from Russia over the last few years? You know, going back to 2014, Crimea in was it 2017, 2018? I think we probably need a, just a very brief history lesson on the fact that Ukraine hosted Euro 2012, of course. I'm sure everyone remembers that, co-hosted it with Poland. Uh, there was a massive spike in sort of the Ukrainian Premier League, etc. They were getting in all these great players from the uh, South American continent, some from Europe and the likes. And that was sort of the peak 2012, 13, 14. And then obviously the occupation of Crimea happened, uh, the war in the East leading to a decline, a natural decline, you could say, as a repercussion of all those events. And as a result of that, the teams in the East, such as Shakhtar and uh, Zarya Luhansk, who are from those regions, have had to sort of be internally exiled, let's say, in their own country. Zarya Luhansk have been playing in Zaporizhia, which is a sort of central southern Ukrainian city since 2014, whereas Shakhtar have been moving from Lviv in the west of Ukraine to Kharkiv in the east. And then since 2020, they've settled in Kyiv, where their de facto base has been, where all the players live, where their training base is, etc. They just thought there's no point. All of this traveling for even home games is just so stressful on everyone. Let's just be based in Kyiv and be central and everything should be okay. And from that respect, Shekhtar haven't really dropped off, you could say, because they've got the backing of Ukraine's richest man. So that always helps. Um, similarly, Zoria have been doing, have been living off the fact that they bring in sort of young players and then sell them on for bigger fees and then also qualifying for the Europa League and stuff, which help with the funding or basic survival from season to season. And then there have been other clubs who have fallen by the wayside, maybe not directly uh, involving due to the war, but just poor financing and all that kind of thing. So what happened in 2014 is from then the league began to shrink from 16 teams down to 14, then to 12. And it was one of those where the league splits in half halfway through the season and then there's championship group, relegation group, all that sort of confusion. And it doesn't do very well for competition or the level of football that you're going to be facing. And then just in recent years, so last season, it went back up to 14 teams. And then this season, it started back with 16 teams. And there, I think, was about 12 new professional teams that came into the Ukrainian third tier, the bottom professional tier this season. So there's been a steady rise and I think it's just an adaptation to the processes of the circumstances we all have been living in for the past eight years. However, the new developments evidently that have happened over the past week or so cast that into doubt, sadly. So am I right in thinking that the season right now is, is, is has had a mid-season break, right? And they've all been training sort of warm weather training and they are due to start soonish? Uh, this week, as in from Friday, that's when the UPL is meant to resume. I say, and then the lower divisions, the second and third tier, meant to resume in a couple of weeks' time. As of right now, Ukraine have announced a state of emergency across the country, which actually forbids mass sporting events. There's been last week there was a meeting between the UAF, Ukrainian Association of Football, the UPL, the Ukrainian Premier League, and then the professional football leagues, the lower two divisions, and they all agreed that everything going to plan as scheduled. Everything should be fine. But then obviously these new developments have cast that into doubt. 
as of when we're recording this, there's not been any update on whether the UPL is going to be postponed, cancelled or anything like that. But potentially, I'm just putting this as sort of for the hope of continuity, which I think that the UAF and everyone wants to do, just even though that there is the threat of war, they want to sort of carry on as, as best as they can. The games might take place behind closed doors, but that's sort of like a completely sure. unconfirmed uh, hunch. Yeah. Checked out the next grown by Ukraine's richest man. What can, you, what can you sort of explain then about him and about, you know, just the club really? Because obviously they, they are well known here and they, they are well known for that kind of pipeline of Brazilian <laughs> talent and, and, the, and the number of guys that have come through there to the Premier League. Renat Akhmetov is the richest man there. He owns a lot of metallurgical companies, uh, lots of coal mines and all that kind of stuff. And most of that was based in the East and some of it is still under sort of the occupied territories. And he hasn't really been too deeply affected wealth-wise by that. And through his funding and sort of uh, Shakhtar as its own business model, it's, it's sort of, I think, its own fulfilling club. It's very much probably the most professional of teams in in Ukraine in terms of their approach, how they deal with media, how they deal with marketing, how they deal with more or less everything. So it's probably the closest you'll, you'll get to like a Western European side. And from that perspective, it's been relatively easy for them. I'm not saying it's been, oh, without its, it, without its troubles, but it's been relatively simple for them to just sharp shop in Donetsk, move to Kiev where their base was, where their training base is, where all the players live, you know, the capital of Ukraine. It's not some sort of rundown misnomer. It's it's a it's a thriving city, you know, home to three million people. So it, it wasn't difficult from that perspective, but they had some troubles adapting to the places where they ended up playing. So like I said, they went to Lviv in the west of Ukraine. And that's quite um, you know, a bit more nationalistic, a bit more patriotic over there. And because they were coming from the Far East at the time, they weren't getting that much support when they were playing in Lviv. So they went to move to Kharkiv, which Kharkiv is literally near the near the Russian border, a bit north of Luhansk um, and Donetsk. And there was a lot more people that had been sort of exiled from Donetsk region. And they had a bit of support there. They were getting decent crowds there, 15, 20K maybe on, on good match days. And then they just thought, listen, we have to fly for every home and away game. This is taking out of our players. This is, you know, wasting money on travel and all this kind of stuff. So during COVID, they thought we may as well use this as an, ex as an excuse per se that, right, we'll stop that, but we'll also sign a lease with the Olympijski, which is state-owned, and we will play there for the foreseeable. I think it was initially like a three-year deal, but that's likely going to be extended de facto for however long. On Ukrainian football and kind of how it mirrors Ukrainian society, the, the, the Ukraine national team, would, would, they, would they be typically all Ukrainian, Ukrainian speakers? Would there be any Russian speakers in that group? I think one thing I have to caveat is that speaking Russian has no links to really being Russian. In any way, it's the same as say Irish people. A lot of them speak English, but they're all majority of favorably well in the Republic of Ireland. They are all you know support the Republic and all that kind of thing. So it's it's a similar scenario in that respect. The de facto language of Ukrainian sports is Russian, just as a hangover from the Soviet Union. It's just how it is. Uh, it's it's difficult to explain, but it's just due to the fact that 
sort of the elites, etc. during the Soviet Union, all spoke Russian. And obviously sport was quite an elite level thing. That's, that's what you get. And that's sort of carried over. And hence, with the national team, for example, there has been um, a conscious effort, especially when they're on national duty for players who usually speak Russian, um, to start speaking in Ukrainian during interviews, um, during the press conference, like Alexander Petrikov, the current manager, who's been born and raised in Kiev, but through sort of this typical Soviet footballing schools, etc. He struggles to speak Ukraine, even though he understands it very well and can communicate it. But he's given a conscious effort, even though he's not the best at it, to speak it in press conferences and the likes. And I feel that the current situation at the moment will probably lead and spur on more Ukrainian language, you know, speaking or just show of patriotism going forward, especially in the playoff against Scotland, which is probably going to be even more of a more of an event um, than it was before. Well, I was going to ask about that. Where, you know, what's what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, as it, God, it's impossible to tell right now, I guess. But but is there any has there been any kind of reporting around it back in back in Ukraine about what what may happen with that game? Yeah, well, it's at Hamden, and then the final, if we make it to that playoff, uh, is also away. So technically, it actually shouldn't affect Ukraine in any sort of real shape or form. I think there's still expectation at the moment. The preliminary uh, plans are to uh, start off like the week in the week before to train in Kiev and then come to Glasgow, finish up training there and play the games. But yeah, they'll certainly it'll be a bit of a respite for people um, once that comes for the whole nation you know, over the hopes of reaching the World Cup for only the second time in their history. I know it's very difficult to, 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 I'm not putting, I'm not saying you speak for everybody in Ukraine, of course, but but what is your sense of of national mood around things like Russia, St. Petersburg hosting the Champions League final? I mean, that, does that just seem it, it, insane for, for Ukrainian? Yeah, it is. It's, it's disappointing. But, you know, as a journalist myself, I'm not surprised in terms of sort of the way that the way that they've supported Ukraine in some respects. I think Alexander Seferin has been quite vocal in sort of how he supports Ukrainian football, not in the context of Russia or anything like that. But he's been quite, you know, cooperative with Andriy Pavelko, the UAF president of late. He joined the 30 year anniversary celebrations of the Ukrainian Football Federation um, Association of Football last year. So. It, hopefully that will be in the back of his mind and the pressures of, you know, the Western European countries, such as the UK, will um, maybe help sway that. Uh, in terms of further and maybe partisanship against Russia, uh, I think there's certainly is the case. And some players that I've seen, maybe not national team players, but like uh, some players I've seen on social media, for example, have been posting something like there's a an ex-Gent AAA Ghent player who currently plays for Bulgarian side Ludogorets Ikhod Plaston. Yesterday he posted a story saying, um, I'm ashamed that I speak in Russian sort of thing. So it's it's an interesting political situation. We'll see how it how it progresses. Like just today, Andriy Shevchenko, probably the most well-known Ukrainian on the planet in no uncertain terms, um, shared his social media post in support of Ukraine, Alexander Zinchenko, the most probably the most popular contemporary Ukrainian player, posted his post yesterday as well. So we're hoping that more of the players in the current team will do that. And as I posted on social media over a few days, it will be interesting to see which Ukrainian player will probably show that support on the pitch 
whether they'll do it through some sort of celebration with the Ukrainian flag or something like that, just to raise awareness. But there's a lot of scepticism in Ukraine just on that basis that a lot of players try to stay as apolitical as possible. But I think in the current situation, it might be forcing their hands to be a bit more vocal and outspoken than they have done. Andrew, lovely talking to you. Um, obviously, a hell of a lot going on in the world and, and, and back back home where, you know, where your family are and, and, and you, you know, so... Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Right, that's it. And thanks to our guests. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. And thanks for listening. The Athletic.